I know it's the thing that like every pastor says, but I mean it when I say it is a delight to be back, <laughs> uh, to be with so many of y'all. If you don't know me, um, like David said, we, uh, my wife and I and our, our kids worshiped here, uh, had one of our daughters baptized in the, in the fellowship of this church. Uh, and so uh, we, we definitely feel God's calling and work still, even though it's almost been two, it's closer to two years now since we uh, got called to Christ community. And yet, we still feel that like tension, like we miss this fellowship so much, but God's doing stuff. We're excited what's going on there, but we miss Valley Hope so much. Um, my wife is sick uh, that she is not able to be here. That A Sunday wedding, how many of those are there? I mean, really. Um, but her and her sister have been asked to sing for that for a dear college friend. Um, and if you happen to have her contact information, you know, text her just to say, we miss you. Um, that would mean the world to her, and it would earn me brownie points. Um, but... Um, but no, she, she said, she texted me this morning to say that she is planning on coming to visit on her own because she did not get to be here this morning. So, um, I, I also wanted to say thank you on behalf of all uh, ministers everywhere that you have given your pastor a very important, precious gift. Uh, it, it doesn't feel fair, does it? Because like no other job in America really does this, which is less about the injustice of giving a pastor a sabbatical, more about how we might think work too important here. But regardless of that, thank you uh, for, for honoring that. You will bear fruit, I promise. This church will bear fruit from the time that he has away. So uh, just, again, on his behalf, uh, thank you. <clears throat> A missionary family was visiting their friends while they're on furlough, and when the missionary's kids, they were outside playing, they were called in for dinner, and their mother said, now be sure to wash your hands. And the little boy scowled and said, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus. That's all I ever hear about. And I've never seen either one of them. Well, here we gather in the name of Jesus Christ to worship a Jesus that we've never seen with our own eyes anyway, our literal physical eyes. And not just any Jesus, but a Jesus that's been raised from the dead. You know, believe it or not, uh, in most, most of the church, we are still in the season of Easter, where we're celebrating Jesus' uh, return from death. And because it's, it's even longer than Lent, believe it or not, because we feel like, you know, the celebration of, of this, the turning point that Jesus' resurrection really is, makes all the difference. And so here we are still uh, celebrating this incredible, ludicrous belief that Jesus is alive, audacious, because I bet none of you have ever seen Jesus in the flesh. And, you know, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection just seems a little easier to swallow, right? Everybody's kind of into the music and the songs. That everybody's yelling, you know, he's risen indeed. and It's just in the air. But, but there might be some of you now, weeks out from that, or maybe you're just here this morning and you're really struggling to believe that, that that's really the case, that that could possibly have happened. And maybe you're even looking for some hard evidence for the, to believe it. Because, I mean, people just don't come back from the dead. It just doesn't happen. But this issue of Jesus raising from the dead and whether you believe it or not, I would argue is actually pretty important. Because there are some beliefs, there are some beliefs that are a matter of life and death. To be clear, when I use the word belief, I'm not just talking about a belief, like, you know, a statement of, or a doctrine. I'm talking about confidence, trust, and, and an idea you know, an idea as mundane as the sky is blue, right? Or a uh, belief that my wife loves me, markedly more important. Or, again, what I would say is perhaps one of the most important 
trusting that Jesus is raised from the dead. But we, we have to acknowledge some beliefs are more important than others. If I have a, or if you have a shortcut to work, um, you, have, you say, if I go this way, it will shave five minutes off my drive. And that belief may or may not be true. Um, I'm taking Flynn now to this great school. God has provided for us in a special way uh, to a school that's out by the airport. So every day I'm driving 30 minutes out to drop them off and 30 minutes back. And I'm trying all the different ways, right? I, Sweeten Creek cut over to Hendersonville down or just Hendersonville all the way down or pick up the parkway. I'm trying every different way. And, and psychologically, I'm like, yeah, that way I think it was a little quicker. You know, but whether or not that's true really has little impact. If I'm probably saving minutes, if anything. And it's that belief whether this way that I'm driving uh, is going to get me to the school faster, it's not that big of a deal ultimately. Um, but if I were an ambulance driver, then the knowledge of the quickest way to the hospital is a matter of life and death. It's, an, it's my belief about getting there, my confidence in the fastest way to get there could cost someone their life or save them from death. So indeed, some beliefs are more important than others. But the challenge with us today is that we have this common assumption in our culture about things that we believe, either that they're a matter of opinion or perspective, or they're a matter of authenticity. What do I mean by that? Well, our culture values the freedom to choose more than discerning whether the belief is true. Therefore, preserving the right to choose is more important than, than actually the thing that I put my confidence in. Not that it's unimportant, but that the priority is placed on, you can't tell me what to do. Or the authenticity piece, that there's this assumption that a belief about, about something is true when I feel earnest about it or when I feel sincere about it, uh, when it feels real to me. That's the litmus test now of what is true. And the depth of feeling is proportional maybe to my degree of outrage, right? Or my degree to the, that belief is challenged. Here's the thing, if it's true, if, that, if our beliefs only matter, if, if we think they matter, if they feel real to us, then it means to counter someone to the, or ask a question of that belief is to be incredibly intolerant and judgmental. An infringement on my right to choose what I want to believe and what I want to do with that belief. I mean, is it any wonder why we can't talk politics anymore? frankly. I mean, it's like, have you noted the vitriol in the last week around issues of sexuality or abortion? I mean, we just, we can't even think the best of one another. Well, certainly, we can't deny the fact that people are free to believe however they want to believe. And honestly, I am not interested in the slightest bit in infringing on that right at all. But just because a person is free to believe however they want, doesn't mean or, or, or that they're free to be authentic about their beliefs does not mean that they can't be authentically wrong. Or saying something out loud with all sincerity, just because you mean it doesn't make it true. So I think it's just I think it's too easy for us to take this freedom and authenticity piece as an excuse really just to be lazy about what we really think about things, to simply go with the crowd or to follow our heart or to minimize conflict with the people. We, like, we don't want to disagree. We're just bombarded with it everywhere. And so we just, we're just tired, and we just don't want to go there to figure out what's really true. But you see, beliefs are true when they match the way things actually are, 
when they accord with reality, right? Whether, not whether we feel like they're true or not. And that is to say, simply believing something really hard doesn't make it true. Because if you don't think about your beliefs or whether they're true or not, you're going to get yanked around. Your heart's going to be pulled back and forth with every outrage du jour, every issue that bubbles up. So, so having true beliefs should matter to us. And let me tell you why. How important is this to the person who struggles to believe that they're worth anything? Or the parent sitting here this morning feeling like they're a failure? Or someone who secretly believes that their mistakes are too big and too shameful to ever, ever be possibly forgiven? Or the person who believes that there's simply no hope and are seriously thinking about taking their lives? They hold false beliefs. And those false beliefs are killing them. I wonder how many of you feel like you're dying this morning under the weight of a belief like that. But friends, how wonderful, how wonderful that we get to say, no, 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 you, you, you are precious. You are lovable. You are uh, capable of being forgiven. You can have hope, even if you don't feel like it today. And if you don't feel like it today, that's okay. We're going to believe it with you and for you. You see, belief is a matter of life and death. And belief in the risen Jesus Christ, if it's true, and granted, I, I totally believe it is, just to be fair. Belief in the risen Jesus Christ really is a matter of life and death. Because if he's not alive, then as P Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain. We have no hope. But we have to be honest about something else, too. The fact that we just say he's risen indeed a lot, that doesn't make the resurrection true either. Just saying it. So I think Thomas is helpful for us in exploring this relationship between beliefs. So I'd invite you to grab a Bible, grab your Bible, grab a phone, whatever. We're going to be in John 20, verse 24. And, and where we are now is um, just before this passage, all the disciples except Thomas have gotten to meet the risen Jesus. It's, it's like Easter night, and Jesus has appeared to them behind locked doors, but Thomas isn't there, so he doesn't get to experience it. And so we're now, we're, 24 is where Thomas steps in. But before we do hear God's word, let's pray for help first. Father, we cry out, I believe, but help our unbelief. For God, we, we want to have greater confidence in your perfect love for us. We want to have greater confidence that you do know the way to abundant life and flourishing life, even when that vision of life clashes with uh, everybody else's. But God, we pray that you would, um, you would preach to our doubts that you would grow our affection, not just so that we have right knowledge of you, God, but that we would have right knowing of you. Draw us in, Holy Spirit. And Father, if anything that I say that's not of you, may it be quickly forgotten. Amen. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, 
Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark, marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then... Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand out and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, the author, John, continues, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks be to God for the hearing and reading of his word. Amen. Yes, Lord, I'm listening. <laughs> there are prophetic messages that come up. You know, you let me know and I need to turn around. All right, so, so this encounter with the risen Jesus is happening eight days after this first encounter on Easter night. Uh, and, it, so, and you have to recognize that the disciples are hiding behind locked doors because it's only been just days since Jesus was crucified, that he had been arrested by dark and then taken away in chains and then died the most brutal death. But now the disciples hid with the fresh news that Jesus' body is missing, despite Pilate's orders to seal the tomb and post guards. So their fear of reprisal is legitimate, right? There's, there's a real risk here for them. But Jesus appears, whatever that means. We're not told if it's just like pop or if he's like slides to the door. I don't think so, but you know, it's, we just don't know what that means. He appears and he shows them the scars. And according to Luke, he eats a meal with them and blesses them, all proof that he is truly and really alive. But Thomas misses out. One of the 12, Thomas the 12, was not with them. Now, why he wasn't there, we don't know. It doesn't say. It's unlikely he was just out buying groceries because, again, fear of, of capture. But the disciples rushed to him and says, we've seen the Lord. And notice his response. Unless I see his hands, his scars, his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas here, I don't think he's doubting that they've seen something. Right? I, I, he doesn't doubt that they've, not, that they've seen maybe a ghost or a prophetic vision of Jesus, but he's having real doubts here about them seeing a real life in the flesh, risen from the dead, Jesus. Hence his request to see and to touch. Some evidence, right? The, to, see, to note the marks. Unless I get these things, he says, I will never believe. Thomas says he wants some proof. In, in the resurrection. And he's not entirely wrong to want some evidence, right? I mean, the resurrection was insane. 
Even to the disciples, they're not gullible or stupid. People didn't just come back from the dead back then either than they more, any more than they do now. So it's not unreasonable for Thomas to want a little bit of evidence here. But he says he wants to see it with his eyes and touch it with the wounds in his fingers. I mean, don't you, in a way, want the same thing? I mean, I know there are days I just like, Jesus, you just could, we could just sit down for coffee, right? I mean, it's not asking much. You can do it. Just, just give me that little bit of reassurance. But the truth is, I don't think Thomas really is looking for proof. You see, his statements aren't ones of, like, careful scientific inquiry. They're, they're really more rhetorical. You can hear the, yeah, right, in his, vo- in his voice, because... You know, his mind is already made up. He already doesn't believe. And unless he gets some clearly impossible evidence, he never will. You see, he hasn't concluded unbelief. He has chosen unbelief. And I wonder if any of you this morning are are waiting for the same thing. If you're putting conditions on believing that Jesus really is alive, really resurrected. Have Have you already made up your mind about this, I wonder? Well, I ask you, is empirical knowledge, and by that I mean like things you can see, touch, taste, smell, hear, things that are just out there for all to see, is that the only kind of reliable source of belief? And if that is your only criterion, see, touch, taste, smell, or hear, then you've protected yourself from the possibility of meeting the resurrected Jesus this morning because you've limited yourself to one way of, of knowing and believing. So is there other ways that you could possibly know? You think about it, criminal investigators don't just look for the DNA and the hard evidence, the bloodstains on the floor, but they make deductions about a crime and about motives from uh, using the things they can see to determine the things they can't. Astronomers regularly use things uh, that they can see, light, frequency, things like that, to find things they can't see, black holes, other planets. Every day, you and I know hundreds of things about our own selves, whether we're hungry right now or sleepy because of the sermon or or using our imaginations, simply by looking inside and saying, what's going on in there? Or what about the, the San Antonio animal lover who last year took two abandoned kittens in only to discover after many scratches and destroyed milk bottles that they were actually wild bobcats? Her, her senses did not, they fooled her. Should the missionary's son, in my opening little story, refuse to wash his hands until he gets a college-level biology class on deadly pathogens? Or should he trust his mother, who loves him? Eight days later, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came, said, peace be with you. Shalom, right? Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Eight days, meaning the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you know, Passover is when Jesus was, that season was when he was crucified. So this is the end of that season now. They're probably figuring out how we're going to get out of town without being seen, get back up north. Thomas was forced to endure a whole week stuck inside with them, talking about having seen Jesus. And then Jesus does appear, and, and Jesus actually says the same thing that he said to them the first time. See the scars. Look at the hands, look at my side. In other words, Jesus offers Thomas the very proof he claims to be looking for. 
Singer, songwriter, and Bible scholar Michael Card says, it's literally Jesus is saying, bring your finger over here. Like, like grabbing it and like, you know, pulling it in. But the text doesn't say that, G- that Thomas does that. Thomas simply worships. He doesn't say, my rabbi. He doesn't say, Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas worships. You know, most, most deities demand homage by threatening wrath and judgment if, if you don't accommodate their demands, or they withhold blessings until you give them what they want. But unlike any other divine claim here, Jesus is known not by any of those things. He's known by his scars, the suffering and the shame that he willingly bore on the cross. That's what sets Jesus apart. He makes him unlike anything else. The scars mark the kind of God that Jesus is. Now, the fact that disciples see and touch them again is proof of the resurrection. It's it's evidence for us. And and even according to Paul's account in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 again, there were like 500 other people who got to see the, the risen, resurrected Jesus in the flesh. But what is important to note here is that along with the crucifixion, this ludicrous belief in the, in the resurrection of Jesus, the confidence that Jesus actually, literally, physically was raised from the dead, became the central declaration of the earliest church, a declaration that drew in tens of thousands of Roman citizens, people who never saw Jesus or ever even heard of a God who would die for his people. They, the most unlikely characters, become those who believe in Jesus as God's own son. Roman citizens view those crucified as shameful and, and, and to be degraded and disregarded. It makes no sense whatsoever that they would trust a deity so different than all of the mighty Greek and Roman gods, so different than the sensibilities of their philosophies, and yet thousands came to believe and worship Jesus because Jesus is known by his scars. That's the kind of God that he is. But Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Really, John? Come on. Could you not have given us a couple more? I mean, really? Thanks. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. In his name. This is one of those kind of creepy places in the Bible where it's speaking directly to you and to me this morning. Because you and I are the ones who have come to believe in the resurrected Jesus, not because we've seen him. We are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Us, 2,000 some years later. And one of the central themes in all of John's gospel is this idea of belief. So it's no no mystery that probably one of the most famous passages of all the Bible, John 3.16, says something about belief, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever should in him might not perish but have life, eternal life. 
You see, John 3.16 and and, and this last part of of chapter 20 and other passages throughout John makes this life-saving connection between belief and life. And the whole reason John writes down this whole account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not because he, he was trying to get a book deal on a history book, but to stir up belief in Jesus as the true Son of God risen from the dead. And again, it's, apparently he did more miracles and demonstrated more divine identity, but, but I think there's a reason why John didn't write anything else down. I think, I think it's actually making a point for us. Because if you have gotten to this point in John's gospel, uh, confronted with all the amazing things that he has said and done, his miracles, his teaching, and it has yet to bring you to a point of belief, adding anything else to the list is not going to make a difference. Blessed are those who have not seen. This is why believing in the resurrection is not simply a matter of hard evidence, touching or seeing or what have you. See, Thomas, Thomas's problem wasn't really more evidence. He was like in the, there in the flesh for most of what Jesus did. The problem was a hard heart. There is a real tension between seeing and believing, you know, seeing uh, desire for evidence, believing, trusting confidence in Jesus. But what we find here in the scripture is definitely a preference for a belief that comes without seeing. Jesus declares a blessing, a barakah, on those who don't get to meet him face to face, but on us, a blessedness upon us who meet him completely by faith. So my question this morning is, where's your belief? Where's your confidence? Are you skating by on a nice Jesus who loves everybody and doesn't really demand much? And just that resurrection thing, I'll think about that later. Are you standing this morning with a skeptical Thomas saying, I need something more. I need you to show me something more if I'm going to believe. But you see, the truth is belief is more than that. Because the reality is, is that like John, if you were given more evidence than you've already been given this morning, like the orderliness of the universe or the scientifically unexplainable consistency of the universe that, of things like atomic weight and gravity, physics, why these things don't change day to day or the fact that the universe had a beginning that's outside of the laws of time and space that created the laws of physics and chemistry or the complex information found in DNA sequence that points to intelligence or the existence of human wonder or human ability unlike any other animal to discover and, and be curious or the copious evidence of a common moral law planted in all people and all cultures, or the pervasive, indelible sense that human life has, matters and has value, or the promises and prophecies of scriptures that have come true, or the archaeological and historical credentials of biblical events that have stood up to the test of time, or, or the extra-biblical attestations to Jesus, or the absence of Jesus' body uh, from armed professional killers, or the unlikely testimony of women considered inadmissible in court, but a testimony that was proclaimed and celebrated by the early church, or the living witness of a bunch of mostly uneducated fishermen who left every bit of familiarity and security to leave one of the largest cultural shifts in all of human history, on the message that Jesus is Lord and alive and their willingness to give up their life on that belief or the pervasive testimony of miracles and answered prayer even today or the testimony of the 100 plus people in this room right now who will tell you that their lives are changed because Jesus is alive. If you need more evidence than that, then it is not about 
the evidence. You've made a choice to not believe. Enough's been set before us to make a choice. And friends, some beliefs are just more important than others. And the one of Christ's resurrection is one of those beliefs that is a matter of life and death. So please, please don't hear me I'm being judgmental here, but just a desire that you would get to know life and freedom in him. That either you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done, proven in his scars, or you don't. And if you don't, if you don't place your trust in Jesus and find life in his name, then the logical consequence of separating yourself from a Lord of life who has defeated death is death. So if you're waiting this morning for more evidence, if you're waiting until you have Thomas-level certainty, then you're going to wait until you die, and that's going to be too late. Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. Friend, this morning is the morning to cry out to Jesus. And to, and to place your confidence in what he's done for you and the love that he has for you. So won't you cry out to Jesus? If you're here this morning and, and you want to believe desperately and, and maybe some days it's easier than others, what, how are things, what are the things that you can do to cultivate or stir up that kind of belief? Well, I think one thing you can do is, is address your doubts. Let, let your doubts be there. Jesus never condemns Thomas for his unbelief. Do you notice that? He invites Thomas to himself. Kierkegaard said, only he who doubts can truly believe. Or paraphrase, paraphrasing uh, Philip Yancey, doubts are not the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith because fear paralyzes you. But doubts move you forward in search of an answer to the question. And friends, the church should be the safest place, the safest place for us to ask any and every question and to express every doubt. We should be the place that loves so much like Jesus that we can let people be where they are. Secondly, we got to invest in those habits, those choices, those patterns that nurture belief. Just as you train your muscles to run a marathon and you do so slowly, we have to train our hearts daily and slowly, one step at a time. And, and you know what? There's no silver bullet here, right? Study God's word, praying, staying connected to Christian fellowship on Sunday morning, and doing these things even when you don't feel like it. They help shape the, the trajectory of our heart toward God. Thirdly, we worship like Thomas worshiped, because worship is the only befitting response to the resurrected Jesus. And then finally, there's power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Notice what John says. This was shared. This was written that you may, uh, let me read it. (laughs) Written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his Christianity Today shared a story about a a recent children's Sunday school class. The teacher asked uh, the children, how many of you are willing to die for Christ? The article says all the children had responded to the the question by putting up their hands. 
and they signaled their, their fresh dedication to Jesus by lighting a symbolic candle. And then not long after the, that, the, the class ended, and the kids joined the Easter worship service at Zion Church in Sri Lanka. And shortly after that, a terrorist walked in and bombed uh, the sanctuary. You know, belief in the resurrection, it's a matter of life and death. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Would you please pray with me? Father, we are, are so grateful for your welcome. A welcome that is built not on how much we're feeling it this morning, but on what you have done in Jesus Christ for us. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Strengthen our confidence in who you are, and in so doing, strengthen our affection for you. And God, if there's anyone here today that is wanting to know you as Lord, is wanting to know the life that comes in knowing you, God, I pray that they would reach out to you now, receive mercy for their sin, and get to know you, not know about you, but to know you as their own Lord and Savior, that they, like Thomas, would cry out, my Lord and my God. Father, as we continue in worship this morning, continue to meet us, continue to change us, continue to love us, and love us more and more closer to you. We ask for this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.